0: This episode is brought to you by IVP. How can we be more Christ-like in the ways we discuss issues of race? In their recent book, Healing Conversations on Race, four clinically trained authors combine biblical teachings with psychological insights to help Christians discuss race and ethnicity well. The case studies, activities, and journaling exercises will prepare you to engage in peacemaking conversations on a topic that can often be volatile and misunderstood. And as a listener of this podcast, you can receive this book for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at iVpress.com.
1: This is IVP. And I asked him about block parties because, you know, a lot of times a church will throw a block, one block party during the year. And he's like, We will eat your hot dogs. We will drink your sodas. We will listen to your music. And we will play th- with the basketball. But other than that, nothing's really going to change because you're only here once a year. Consistency and presence change communities. They need to trust the church. How do they do that? Consistency and presence. Again.
2: Again. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from Varsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Today, I'm talking to Amy Williams, the self-described hope dealer. We discuss Amy's work in gang intervention and restorative justice, the biblical and theological basis for her work, and the counsel that she would give churches and ordinary Christians who wanna serve and love their communities. Amy is a 29-year youth ministry veteran, a certified gang intervention specialist, and currently the project coordinator at New Life Centers, bringing restorative justice programming to the incarcerated youth at the St. Charles, Warrenville, and Chicago Juvenile prisons. Amy's first book, Worth Seeing, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of God, will be published with IVP in 2024. Amy has such an obvious passion for justice and love for her community. We have so much to learn from her. Amy, thank you so much for being with me today.
1: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Of course. Can we start off by just having you share a little bit about your background How did you end up doing the work that you've been doing for quite a while now in gang intervention and restorative justice? That doesn't come from nowhere. So tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to this work.
1: Sure, absolutely. I've been blessed to be able to do this work for 29 years, working with young people in gangs and in the criminal justice system. And you know, I often ask myself, how did I end up here? 29 years (laughs) later, I'm still asking that question. And I look back and I think about my baby brother, honestly. He was gang involved. He was in and out of the system. And it was during a time where I was young and I couldn't do much to help him. I feel like that a lot of times your passion is birthed out of your pain. Mm-hmm. And through that and knowing that now I have the resources – Now I have the connections. Now I have the money. Like I'm old enough to know how to do this work. I can help out as many young men that are just like my baby brother in a lot of situations and and to be able to find that to, you know, find that help started with, uh, working with urban young life. And I just swore I never wanted to do youth ministry. It was (laughs) never a thing. I tried very hard to run from it but just kept failing myself drawn to young people and finally just surrendered to that calling and that passion and here i am 29 years later that's incredible for people who might hear the words that i just
2: used gang intervention um and we talked you talked about criminal justice system and might just feel like those are abstract concepts. I don't really know. It's hard for me to imagine what you do on a day-to-day basis or what your work looks like. Can you just describe for us what that means for people? Because again, I think part of what we want to talk about today is that a lot of the ideas that seem important to folks as they begin to learn about some of these issues are really abstract. And so they're not really thinking about what people on the ground are are doing or what this looks like in real life. So what does your work look like for someone who might be unfamiliar with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the work that I currently... Currently, do is to bring restorative justice programming into the juvenile prison systems, right? And so restorative justice is all about repairing the harm that has been caused. And so we bring in peace circles and art and music and barber workshops, and we go into the prisons weekly, build relationships with the young people, let them know that they're seen, they are loved. And they are valued, most importantly, that they do have a purpose on this earth, that this is just a chapter of their life, right? They have a whole entire book left to write and to mentor them and walk life with them while they're inside and when they return back to the community. Um, A lot of that returning back to the community means returning back to um, high risk, high violent gang um, affiliated, uh, environments. And so helping them walk through that difficulty and trying to live a healthy life, to be a healthy citizen and to not go back into the prison system. So it requires a lot of prayer, a lot of patience, a lot of just walking with young people where they are, helping them to discover their purpose.
2: That's amazing. Um, I've heard you. I've, I've listened to a few interviews with you, and you call yourself a hope dealer. A hope dealer I, to the dope dealer. <laughs> they sling dope. I sling hope. I love that, and I I think a lot of people can hear that, um, and especially when people think about Christians and Christian hope, might think, okay, hope is just kind of. This idea, it's pretty meaningless to address material conditions, uh, poverty, systemic injustice. And so really, that's just kind of like a nice idea, but it doesn't really have anything to do with changing those material conditions. How would you respond to that or how would you describe the role that hope plays in the work that you do?
1: Well, I think Father Greg Boyle, who uh, runs the largest gang intervention ministry, I think in the world, Homeboy Industries out of Los Angeles, says that what we're dealing with with young people is a lethal absence of hope, right? And so our communities don't have the hope that is necessary to push through And become all that they can be. What does that mean? What does that look like? It sounds like a bunch of gibberish. But really, if somebody doesn't have hope, then what they do today doesn't matter. They will inflict harm on themselves. They'll inflict harm on others. It really doesn't matter. They're just in survival mode but hope gives you focus hope gives you a reason to do better hope is changes the, what you do with your time how you value other people and our love is rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ right like our hope is found in the fact that God created us for a purpose for a reason to glorify him and to change our communities right through love through hope without hope who are we what are we we're just surviving and that's what a lot of our young people are doing today is simply just surviving with no hope at all and so we as christians hope to be the light in a kid's darkness right to help them see hope to infuse hope in them even if they don't have hope in themselves and so hope is very instrumental and helping to see change in our communities and in our churches. You just said something
2: interesting about, you know, Christians glorifying God and then changing their communities and those both being part of of what it means to be a Christian. I think some people have grown up in churches where they thought changing our communities is not part of what it means to be a Christian. Like, I'm just waiting for Jesus to make everything new, and I don't really have to to do that work myself in the here and now. How would you describe how you know the the reasoning for christians to say like i'm not just waiting for jesus to come back and fix everything i'm trying to seek restoration and and good yeah.
1: flourishing communities right here and now well i think just sitting and waiting for jesus is very passive i think it's it's very excuse me i think it's lazy i think it is not what god has called us to do god has called us to love our neighbor Um, sitting and waiting is not loving our neighbor. We have a short amount of time on this earth to represent who God is. And we have to do that in our communities, whether it's loving our neighbor, whether it's fighting for systemic change, whether it is making sure that people have healthy relationships. It's all about going out, Loving mercy, seeking justice, right? We know, we know the scripture in there. But I've never been part of a church that just sits. I don't think that that is what Jesus did. I think Jesus was on the move. He was on a roll. He was everywhere trying to heal, trying to give people hope and love as much as he could for the short time that he was on this earth. So why aren't we doing the same? And I think that's why our communities are the way that they are, right? I think that there's so much talent in our neighborhoods, that uh, unseen talent, untapped talent in our churches. Um, There's so much that needs to be done in order to create healthy communities. And the world is looking to the church for that. You know, I say unbelievers don't read the Bible. They read Christians. And so how are you representing the faith, the love, the hope, the mercy, the compassion, the justice of God? That can only be done through us, through us until he comes back. It's a responsibility. I
2: love that. That's so important. I I had a professor in seminary who someone was asking him a similar question to what I just asked you, and he kind of was like confused. He was like, "Jesus told you to do this." <laughs> like, <laughs> I, was, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like Jesus told you to do this, you should That's do like,
1: it. you watch this tape back, you see my face, like, huh? Oh, yeah, because <laughs> I've just never heard that before myself. So all I've heard is we got to get out there and we got to love people, you know, so and help our communities. We live in these communities, right? And so it's not even about us saving the neighborhood. I remember when God asked me to move into a gang neighborhood and my first reaction was, that's funny. You got (laughs) jokes. I'm not moving into a gang neighborhood. Right. And after hearing, you know, God saying to me like, but I'm not asking you to save anybody. Those are my people. What I'm asking you to do is to be a light in a kid's darkness and to move it from they and them to we and us. And so now I'm in this community with all of these gang-affiliated young people, non-affiliated young people, and this is our community, right? We are responsible for taking care of that. How do we do that? By how do we do that together? That's the key. Yeah, I'm struck hearing you say that, that like a, a couple of the,
2: the guests we have this season, part of their story was moving into a new neighborhood mm-hmm. and going, I don't just come in here, pop in do some work or or give some things to you or kind of, it's not a one-way relationship i'm committed to this place tell me a little bit more about that story because i think for some people that's the model they've been given in churches even if the church does really care about certain issues, and that's maybe part of the problem. We think about it in those kinds of terms. It's like we pop in and do a thing and we've kind of checked the box off and then that's all we're really committed to do. I think a lot of people, I mean, even in my city, the churches that a lot of the people go to don't feel like we live here and have have stakes here. Right. Um, and we we might go over to another neighborhood and do some kind of service project or something, but we don't really feel like we are committed to that level to the community that we're in. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that happened for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I learned it through the CCDA model, right? The Christian community development model of living among the people and you being one of those people, right? I've heard that if your church shut down, will the community even know? Will they even be aware of that, right? Like for me, not everybody is called to move into a gang neighborhood, I I would not recommend it at all, right? It is a calling. (laughs) It is a calling. It is something that um, you have to be very clear that God has called you to. But we can impact the communities that we currently live in. You don't necessarily have to move to another community. But what about the one that you already currently live in? What are you doing for the people and that particular community? But for some people, it is about... Relocating and moving to the area to the population of people that they're most passionate about. For me, it was young people. For me, it was gang involved young people. That was what I was most passionate about. I was, my lease was up, and God had a totally different plan because at first I was like, I don't have to live there among them, right? You hear, do you hear my language? It sounds very disconnected, very and, and division is in that. And God said, but these young people, they need you to live among them. They need you to live with them, but they don't need you to save them. That's my job, right? I just need you to love them. One of my favorite characteristics of God is he's very strategic, very strategically put me in place in this particular neighborhood to love on those particular young people. And so what are you doing for the current community that you're living in? Or is God calling you to move into another community? You have to be at the feet of God for this.
2: Yeah, that's that's huge. And even I think the thing that you just said a moment ago, I want to come back to because I think this is hard for people to think about. You just said, you know, I'm not here to save you. Yep. I'm here to love you. I'm I'm here to be a part of your community. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's challenging for us to figure out what is our responsibility and what can we not do. I mean, I've heard you say like I I can't save anyone. I can't I can't make them believe in Jesus. I can't make them believe the gospel. Um, but I do have, as we've said, this like demand really for uh, this demand of the gospel to be involved in this community to seek good things for people. Yes. Have, has that been a struggle for you to distinguish between like, oh, I'm putting weight on myself to do things I can't do? or, Absolutely.
1: Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I call myself a recovering fourth member of the Trinity, right? Like <laughs> I used to try to sit at the table with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit and be like, I know that kid. I know what's best for that kid. Let me tell you what we're going to do. And God, you know, the beautiful thing is God, really didn't need me in that neighborhood. He wanted me to work and walk alongside of him as he does the work. I think in, in my upcoming book, one of my chapters is called The Great I Am Not. He's the great I am, which makes us the great I am not. <laughs> we do not have the power to save anybody, but we do have the responsibility and the power to represent the God that does love them. And so, a lot of my kids on the block, they would know, you know, and she's a Christian. They call me the pastor of the block, the pastor of the street. If they need prayer, they know who to go to. If they have questions about God, they know who to go to. Like, I represent God. They know who I am. But at the end of the day, I am not the lead actor in a person's life, I'm a supporting actor. And too many times we get our roles confused. We think we're a fourth member of the Trinity, and then we think we're in charge of of a young person's life or anybody's life. And that's where we get burnt out. That's where we get disappointed because things don't go the way we want them to. Uh, I'm a recovering control freak as well. So my issues... I have to get out of the way so that God can be God and do what he wants to do. And again, being at the feet of God, learning what he wants me to do, where he wants me to go and how he wants me to do it. Because just because I can do something doesn't mean I should. Right. Just because I can bail a kid out of jail doesn't mean God wants me to. Maybe God wants him to sit in jail for a night so that he can have an intimate conversation with him with no distractions around. A lot of this comes from knowing what your role is in the kingdom, knowing who you are and knowing who you are not.
2: We're kind of spending this whole season trying to think through, okay, for people who are passionate about certain Um, Issues of justice in their communities. What internal work (laughs) needs to be done so that we can be the kind of people that do this well? Because I worry that some of us, I'm thinking especially of like my generation of like younger Christians that are going, oh my goodness, I didn't really grow up in a church that talked a lot about poverty or injustice or the criminal justice system, and I'm learning all this stuff, and I'm really passionate, and we like go in head first, like I'm just going to be the one that fixes all the things, and both maybe have some wrong kind of expectations for what will be to do, but haven't done some internal work to be like, do I have the right spiritual disciplines or practices or community or relationships to be able to do that well? What has helped you sustain the work that you're doing? What practices or relationships um, or habits that you've been in have helped you sustain work that is really challenging? First
1: of all, I have to say I'm so excited that this young generation is excited about change. Is excited about systemic change right is excited about wanting to do the internal work um wanting to figure out how can i impact so yay for young people it's always been young people they've started every movement um you know jesus i mean he loves young people god loves young people he talks about young people all the time in the bible the disciples young people right like everybody that come to me like a child. I mean, so young people are very, very important in this movement, but they need mentors as well. So I'm 53. I know. I don't look it. I look it. I know. I know. But but even at 53, I have mentors, right? Mm. And so it's very important that if you're going to do this work, that you don't go it alone, you don't do it in silos, but that you do it in community and you do it alongside a mentor as well, right? Um, Somebody who is older that can walk you through, that can hold you accountable and that will tell you the truth, right? And will make sure that your spiritual life is healthy, right? We have a lot of unhealthy leaders out there. We have a lot of unhealthy volunteers and workers who are just doing the work but forgetting to let the work be done in them. And I think that we have to learn how to, I mean, the thing Jesus most cares about is relationship with him, right? And he wants to be able to do these things with you, but we get so caught up in the work that we forget the relationship with him. And so there has to be that balance. And so I really just encourage young people, find some mentors Start with one, but then build that up and become a mentor to somebody younger than yourself as well. Do the work, do the work and do it with God. How did you, when you were
2: realizing that you had started to style yourself as the fourth member of the Trinity or that you had kind of a a control problem, what helped you recognize that in yourself and work through that? Because I I think that that's probably one of the common problems with the lack of internal work is I start to think the weight of the world's on my shoulders. And then it, that starts, you know, maybe that starts initially sounding good. Like, oh, I'm just really passionate about this and I want to do a lot of work. And then over time, you do end up in an unhealthy leadership style right. where you're
1: controlling too much and you're really actually harming the people you want to help. Bam, that right there, what you just said. I was beginning to harm the people that I was trying to help. I was becoming unhealthy and burnt out. And I realized, wait a minute, this is not the way that God intended it. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be sick all the time. I'm not supposed to be unhealthy and in bed and snapping at everybody and getting frustrated and everything that I'm trying to control It's not working out, right? I used to be an event planner. Um, I used to have my own event planning business because I liked the control. I got to control (laughs) what we ate. Uh I got to control the setup, the theme, the decorations. But every time you do an event, it never goes the way you planned never something always pops off something always happens the caterers late you know the decorations are the wrong color and so just through that learning that i am really not in control of much of anything really um and not wanting again to harm the people that i'm so desperately wanting to help and bless and i think it just all came to a head and god was just like this is this is not This is not how I have how I planned it to be and really needing to step back and become a healthy leader. And I did. I had to step down and become that healthy leader.
2: Have you put anything in place or had any kind of signs for, oh, I I don't want this to happen again. What do I need to do to to not end up in the same place that I was in?
1: I have people that I allow to hold me accountable People that really know me, right? Like not everybody can be a mentor. Not everybody should hold you accountable. But people that really know me can say, and I give them permission to say, they see the signs. They know me. I'm not me. Why am I snapping everything? Why am I always tired? Amy, you've been sick a lot. When's the last time you hung around an adult? Um, All of these different kind of questions, I, I really depend on my community to hold me accountable for that when I can't see it, right? I think I've been doing this long enough that now I can see it and it's up to me to decide if I'm going to do it or not, be healthy or not, right? And a lot of times we just press through, we just press through, we just press through. And that that's not healthy at all. That's that's what I call the violence that we do to ourselves, Right? The violence that we don't talk about is the violence that we do to ourselves. Overwork, right? The overworking, because society awards us for the overwork. Mm. And especially in Christian circles, we call it the sacrifice. Yeah. I'm sacrificing my health, my time, my whatever for the glory of the kingdom. And that's not healthy. That's not what God has called us to. So just recognizing all of those different kind of things when they come at me and um, really listening to my body. I think a lot of times we physically don't listen to our bodies. And um, that is a good signal that we're not healthy leaders as well. So, Yeah. Lots of different ways. It's, it's not just one way to know that you're, you're unhealthy. It's many different ways. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening and will you do something about it? The world is going to continue with you, without you. I And I think that's another thing that I noticed. Even if I'm laid out in bed for a week, you know what? The world keeps going. Those kids keep still living their lives and they don't necessarily need the fourth member of the Trinity.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I I feel like I get sick often when it's a moment that I'm just like, oh, something is off. Like yeah. I needed to be like forced mm-hmm. into being in bed for a while to make me realize, gosh, I really did think that everything would stop spinning if I wasn't working all the time. And that was
1: right. <laughs> but that's not healthy. Right. We don't yeah, want to get yeah. to the point where God has to tell us and knock yeah. us off our feet. Right. In order to to really help others we have to help ourselves we have to be healthy and we have to know those signs before it gets to that point
2: part of the reason that i am committed to politics is because i believe that change is possible in our local national and global structures i believe that god can and does use the church to bring about change in god's world But that means we have to be honest about systems and structures that need our attention and examination. In his book, Rethinking Police, author and former police officer Daniel Reinhardt shares about his own journey of moving from ignorance to awareness of the flaws in the criminal justice system. And he offers hope for a new way that community policing can be done that honors the dignity of all people. If you'd like to find out more, stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear how you can get a 25% discount on Rethinking Police at ivypress.com. You said something earlier about when we were talking about control that was highlighting for me, I was thinking like, I think this might be part of the reason why some churches really struggle in terms of how to be involved in the community they're in and to really seek its good is we're really good at like, let's make a program, let's put a thing together and we'll have control over it and we'll know yeah. the parameters and we'll, and like relationships with people in our communities are not controllable in those kinds of ways <laughs> and like bring all these difficulties and can be messy. And like, how would you counsel, um whether it is a church or it's an individual or a family to kind of seek out those real relationships with people. Um, Because I think part of our, part of our fear is that just the models that we've done for so long, or we make a program, we make a curriculum and this feels scary in comparison to those things that we're really familiar with.
1: Well, because it allows God to be God. (laughs) I mean, that's scary because it's unpredictable and you don't know what God is going to do. You have no idea what he's going to do. And I think that the first Question for me would be, why do we need so much control?
2: Hmm.
1: Why do we need that control? Control is based out of fear. What are we afraid of? Right? Whatever it is that we're afraid of, we try to control it. So that fear, if you keep digging deeper, is about not feeling secure. Right? And so when you're not feeling secure and you're anxious, you have fear, You you got to find something control to control because it brings all of that to a calmness, right? A lot of people, including myself, if I'm anxious and I feel life is out of control, I clean my house. Yeah, because I can control that. (laughs) Yeah, I can put with that where I want to put it. I can clean it. It looks good. Everything looks good, even though my entire world is is crumbling. And people will say, go into somebody's house and it'll tell you about the condition of where their heart is at the moment. Um, When my dad recently passed away. My house was a total mess because I just didn't care. I didn't care who saw it. I didn't care anything about it, right? Because that's where my life was. My house was a mess because I was a mess. Um, and so I think as we as we get back to that, the question for the churches is why do we need that control? Why can't we just go with the adventure of what God would have for us? And I think that that would go very deep because a lot of that will be the stuff leadership is dealing with. It starts with leadership and trickles down into us, right? And so you may have some young people who are excited about doing something, and then leadership shuts it down. Why? What is the need for control? Why do we have to be sit at the table with Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit? Why? And I, I think it would start. That's where my counseling it would start there.
2: And I also think maybe one of the things that people – when people have this approach, part of the issue is that we just sort of assume we know what our community needs. And so, okay, Mm. let's just come in with the program or the curriculum or the – and one of of the things we're talking about this season and one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was – to, to try and kind of help people who might be really engaged with some issues hypothetically, who might really care about knowing the right answers to show up to a voting booth and kind of check off the things that they should check off, which I this is what I spend my life talking about as politics. I think that's really important. Yeah, but don't really have a connection like person to person with some of the things that they care about hypothetically politically that they care about on social media. Right. And and so I'm just curious from your perspective like how has being in relationship with people? How has being committed to your community changed you? How has that affected the things that you care about or the solutions that you think are viable? Because I think, like I said, part of the issue is we think we've got all the right ideas. We don't really need to be in relationship with the people who we think we need to bring solutions to because we already know the right answers.
1: Well, I think if that were the case, then our communities would be changed. But a lot of communities aren't changing. And the reason why is because we are not including community the community, the community members in the problem solving. Brian Stevenson said, those that are closest, or Glenn Martin, I'm so sorry. Those that are closest to the problem are the ones with the solution. So if I want to figure out how to get kids off the street that are in gangs, why would I talk to a pastor? I need to talk to the kids that's in the gang and find out what exactly is it going to take for you to leave this lifestyle and how can i support that right how can i support that and so as we as we think about this i remember i was speaking i was asked to speak on a panel around incarceration and my first question was who on the panel has been incarcerated
0: <laughs> yeah
1: nobody so i said well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to step down and I'm going to recommend somebody who has been incarcerated to actually sit on your panel. We have to stop talking about people and talking to them and start talking with them. That's huge. Churches should not be just coming up with programs unless they know the needs of the community. And how do you do that? You talk to the people in the community. It's really not that difficult. I see people standing outside their church talking to people that walk by having lunches for the community doing um block parties doing um many different things to get to know the members in the community. I remember I talked to a gang member though and we need to be aware of this a gang leader. And I asked him about block parties because you know a lot of times a church will throw a block one block party during the year and he's like we will eat your hot dogs we will drink your sodas, we will listen to your music, and we will play with the basketball. But other than that, nothing's really going to change because you're only here once a year. Consistency and presence change communities. They need to trust the church. They need to trust the church. How do they do that? Consistency and presence. And so there are are lots of problems, which means there are lots of solutions, but we have to do it together. If you don't do it with the community, nothing is going to change. And some people are comfortable with that. Some people are comfortable with not having communities change. But then they'll be the first ones to complain about it at the booth, at the voting booth. So Mm, mm -hmm. mm, we got to do better. Have
2: you seen churches do this well? And what did that look like
1: if they did? Yeah. Yes, I have seen churches do this well, and it it is done the, the, as the way that I've expressed this, consistency and presence. It's a little scary for a lot of churches. I've seen a lot of churches not do it well, um, but I've seen some churches that understand that if they are in the community They're not saving the community. They're a small part of what happens in that community. They're a small asset of what's going on in that community. That liquor store on the corner is an asset in that community because they've been there for 30 years and they know all the kids. They know all the parents, right? How do you connect with the guy that owns the liquor store on the corner to make change in the community, even though he may be one of the problems, right? But if you include him in that, he can share, this is the reason why. This is what I see. This is what I hear every day.
2: When it comes to relationships, um, and I'm even thinking not just of pastors, but of people in churches who are like, okay, yeah, I want to I, – I mean, I know people who have moved closer to the church that they're at because they're like, no, I want to feel like this is my community Beautiful. and this church is – we're all part of this together – but it still can it can be challenging and scary for people to think about building relationships when maybe most of their life has been pretty isolated in the church. They know how to be around people who are like them. How would you counsel people either positively? Here's what you should do if you're just striking up conversation with people in your neighborhood or trying to build a relationship. And maybe here's what like maybe well-intentioned things you should not do that will not build up right?
1: relationships well. <laughs> Oh, that's a whole other podcast right yeah. there. You may have to have <laughs> me back for that. One of the things that I I recommend is having the church have a, a like adopt a school or an organization that they can serve and, and like starting there that they can serve help the teachers. Um, help the students, volunteer at some of these organizations. That's what I, whenever someone wants to get into this work, I'm like, find an organization that's already doing the work and dedicate some time learning from them. A lot of times we try to start something new. There's no need to start something new when there are 10 organizations doing violence prevention. So just go and volunteer and learn and sit at the feet instead of starting something new. I think we think that we are limited to the church walls. We have got to get past that mindset. We've got to get past that. There are organizations that need the church's help. What? How can the church help? The church is full of talented people. The church is full of those who are willing to do everything from fundraising to knowing about real realty to um, knowing how to work with kids, knowing how to cook, knowing how to sew. Assess your church. See what the gifts and the talents are and how that connects with communities and organizations that are surrounding that church. Get outside of the walls and get to know. Have a lunch with one organization a month and invite that organization to your church or go to that organization, get a tour, have a lunch, learn about them, get to know what's in your community. It is vital. And anybody can make a phone call and set up a lunch. Get somebody to cook that lunch and then sit with those that work and get to know them.
2: What would you say for for the people in the church who are like, I honestly have never met my, most of my neighbors. <laughs> and I like, I'm hypothetically committed to my community and my right, neighborhood. Right. But like, I am not, maybe I'm not very extroverted or I'm not, but like, I, I care in the abstract about sure. doing this.
1: What would you say to them? Oh, we got to be brave, y'all. Mm. We got to take courage. We got to take the Holy Spirit with us. I think a lot of times people depend too much on their ability. So I say get together, pray, and go. And let the Holy Spirit show you why it's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Right? I think if you're an introvert, find an extrovert in your church. Partner up. Yeah. Pray and go. That extrovert will do all the talking while you're doing all of the assessing and looking and thinking of the questions to ask. And, I mean, teamwork. I think... Forever in the Bible, everybody goes out in twos, right? I think I rarely see anybody, even Jesus had 12, right? So, I mean, I rarely ever see anybody going out alone to take on a task. So pair up with some people, get a group, two people, three, four, 10, and and do it that way. It's time to be brave and it's time to lean on the Holy Spirit. I I so
2: appreciate that. I mean, I even feel like in my own neighborhood, when I moved in here, I was like nervous about, you know, building relationships with my neighbors, partially because I moved into a neighborhood very diverse, very different than me, religiously, racially. And the first Halloween I was here, I was like, oh, my gosh, what a wonderful opportunity. People are literally just coming to my door (laughs) and I'm giving you candy. Like, this is up to You, right, exactly. (laughs) But I just thought like, I mean, maybe I overcome. Complicated it initially. Maybe I turned it into like, I have to have this, you know, grand strategy or plan instead of like, this is just a norm, they're normal people and I'm normal people and we can just like have a conversation walking into the house or the kids are playing outside or once it once I like took down the pressure, it helped. But I think a lot of people do in the church have this idea that for them to be involved in their community, It's it's a big job
1: and it requires a lot of strategy and a lot of work. When I moved into the gang neighborhood, I did not have a plan. I did not have a budget and I did not have volunteers. Mm -hmm. All I had was the Holy Spirit and God leading me. And literally I would wake up. Okay, God, what are we going to do today? And it it would be step by step. Drive through the neighborhood. Okay, I'm going to drive through the neighborhood and then a kid would pop up. Stop and talk to that kid that, you know. For me, it was just a a going and just letting God orchestrate who he needed me to speak to. I remember I was walking down the street one day with a kid, tall, African-American kid, long hair, had the hoodie on, had his head down low, and he was just walking. And he had some nice sneakers on. And I said, hey, how you doing today? I really like your kicks. Have a great day. And I kept walking. I didn't stop. I didn't talk to him. He was like, "Uh, uh." And then he turned around and he was like, "Uh ma'am, ma'am." And I was like, "Yeah." And he was like, uh, "Thank you for speaking to me cuz nobody ever does." And I was like, "I see you. I see you. Have a great day." And I just and then I turned around and walked away. You know, it, it it's that wasn't grand. That wasn't a planned, right? It was just me saying God saying, "Acknowledge that kid. Say hello." Right, so no, it doesn't have to be grandiose. Uh, we got that I think that's the enemy thinking, the enemy planting, so that we don't do that. I think we come up and and I challenge your listeners, sit down and ask yourself, why am I giving all these excuses? Go deeper because a lot of these are excuses. they're valid, but a lot of them are excuses to not have to do the work, and so really dig in spend some time with God if you want to impact the community God is waiting for you and there's plenty plenty of work to be done we need you we need you
2: how do you handle amy when the work fails <laughs> yeah when when you have done you know the best that you can do with the resources you have and it fails. I mean, I'm thinking, please share this for your own context, but I'm just also thinking of churches who like went in and were like, okay, let's great. Let's do this. Let's be involved in our communities. Yeah. And it sometimes fails, or there's just setbacks and difficulties. How have you g- gotten through those experiences or reckoned with the fact that, that you will fail, that you won't be able to fix some of the things that you want to fix?
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, I'm going through that right now. So it's 29 years of success and failure. And I think Success and failure are relative terms as well, right? Because I can have a kid who is on parole, that seems like a failure, but he passed his drug test, that's a huge success. Um, Kids who I'm dealing right now who have come home from prison and weeks later are back in prison. And I'm like, you had every resource available to you and we were here, we loved on you and we walked with you. Why are you going back to prison? I'm human. So I feel what I feel. I feel the disappointment. I feel the beating up on myself. But I've gotten to the point where if God doesn't do it, it's not gonna get done. I I honestly, I tell myself, Amy, you don't know the whole picture. You don't see the whole picture. God sees the whole picture. So there are times where I just have to love and not try to figure it out. I have to realize again Who God is and who I'm not. And that he's the one that's responsible for making change. He's the only one that can change the heart of his people. And he does. He does change the heart of his people. I have buried a lot of my young people. And every time I bury one of my young people, I'm just like, what's the point of doing this work? What's the point? I pour in. I love, I give my whole heart only for them to be taken by gun violence, to have to continue to bury them and knowing that I'm probably going to bury another kid at some point. What's the point of doing all of this? And for me, it comes down to as long as that young person has on this earth, may they know that they were loved and valued. May they know that they were loved and valued and that God sees them. And then I walk through the pain with my community. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to like it. But I have to keep pressing for the next kid. I have to be there for the next young person. And I have to be healthy doing it. So I have to take my time to grieve. I have to take my time to to go through that. I have to take my time to go through the disappointing appointments and the questioning and all of that. But it will not turn me around because there are other young people. One of my young people that I uh, buried, uh, Jonathan, my number one guy, he says he spent most of his life in prison praying for someone like me to come into his life. Somebody out there is praying for somebody like you to come into their life. No matter what it looks like, whether they're alive, whether they're gang involved, whether they're a sex worker, whether they're unhoused, someone out there is praying for someone like you to come into their life. Someone's waiting for you to do what God has told you to do in order to change their entire world. And so for me, disappointment, failure, it happens, it comes, it goes, but this is God's work and and there's nothing we can do to mess up God's plan. There's nothing we can do to mess up with his plan. So we just got to keep pressing, building community, stay humble and seek the face of God in it all, including our own healing.
2: I think that's a great place to end, Amy. Thank you so much. I, Absolutely. I'm so encouraged and convicted by your words. And I imagine others will be too. Um, both the like the good combination of security and what God is doing that God's plans do not fail. And also, God is asking you to do something and there is someone praying for you to, to say yes to that. So yes. thank you so much for your work and for your words today.
1: Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed myself. God bless everybody.
2: The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Mila Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson. And I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the IVP YouTube channel and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.